Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Good to be back in the Word of God with you again. This is our final study in the second epistle to the church of Thessalonica. But be sure to tune in next week because we're starting a new book in the Word of God, and it is a study that I can guarantee you, you do not want to miss. Bible's in hand and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, before Paul could wrap up his letter to the church at Thessalonica, there were a few issues that still needed to be addressed. Word had gotten back to Paul that the church had a few misunderstandings that needed correcting. 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Maybe you heard the old tale about the man who lived alone in Idaho. This old man, he wanted to dig up his garden and get it ready to plant potatoes. But it's tough work, and his only son, Bubba, who used to help him, was in prison. Well, the old man mentioned it in a letter he sent to his son by saying, I'm not sure exactly what to do. I'm just getting too old to be digging up a garden. It looks like I won't be able to plant that garden this year, after all. Well, a few days later, the old man received a very short letter from his son, and all it said was, Dad, for heaven's sake, don't dig up that garden. That's where I put the bodies. Well, sure enough, at 4 a.m. in the next morning, an entire team of police officers and FBI agents arrived to look for the bodies spoken of in the letter. And after digging for hours, they gave up. They apologized to the old man and left. Well, soon after, the old man received another letter from his son, and all it said was, Dear Dad, under these circumstances... This is the best I can do. Go ahead and plant your potatoes now. Well, working for food in the basics of life, it's been a part of life ever since the Garden of Eden. And at Thessalonica, they faced a situation that's hard for many people to imagine. You see, these dear believers actually believe the Word of God. These followers of Christ actually believe Paul when he taught them that the return of Christ could come at any moment, to the point that they actually got a little carried away, and some of them actually quit working. They figured, if Christ is about to return, then what is the point of spending your days working? 
In our text for today, Paul sets out to put the record straight and lay out the right course of living for those in Christ during these last days. But here is why we need to study this passage. While Paul is addressing the issue of work, Paul laid out some principles that go far beyond just the issue of work. Paul hit on some issues that have some serious ramifications for the church today. Take another look at verse 6 with me. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, this is not a popular verse, and this is not a popular topic, which is part of the reason why I think Paul, in the text before this, was building up to this. And remember what he told them back in verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Paul was reminding them of their obedience in the Lord up until this point, and he was preparing them for the tough words of instruction that was about to hit them in verse 6. And you can almost measure the strength of a local church by whether or not a passage like this is skipped from the pulpit, or is it taught as they make their way through the Word of God? Or better yet, does an assembly of believers live out the principles of this text when they are faced with a difficult situation within the church? Listen, this may not be the most popular message because there is a great misunderstanding in the church today of what the love of Christ is supposed to look like. But at some point in your faith, you're going to find yourself in a situation where the principles of this passage, this text, come into play. And then at that point, the question then becomes, are you going to stand up and live out the commands found in the Word of God, or will you back down and cave in? Now remember, Paul had already touched on part of this issue back in his first letter to them. Turn back, if you would, to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Thinking back to our study of his first letter to the church, remember what we read in chapter 4, starting in the second half of verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. We're going to come back to this in a little bit, so don't lose track of this point. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we read that Paul had already instructed the church about this when he was first with them. Then Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 4, urging them to work with their own hands, which was Paul's first attempt at correcting the problem. And so by the time we get to verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul was making a second attempt to correct them, and this This was now a command. Think of what Paul had done. Notice the contrast in the wording between this passage and the passage in chapter 3 of the second letter. In the first letter, Paul urged them. Paul was trying to gently nudge them in the right direction. Flipping back to 2 Thessalonians, you can see now the wording is much, much stronger. This is a command. This command from Paul, Timothy, and Silas demonstrates both the love and authority And the wording used was very, very strong. The word command actually was used of a military command that a person must obey or else they would face the penalty of treason. Meaning this was not a suggestion. This was a binding order with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the text teaches us. The command came in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that Paul, Silas, and Timothy spoke to them as representatives of Christ. They spoke to them in the name of Christ. Now the command itself was that they withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. 
Back in chapter 5 of this first letter, Paul had told the church to warn those who were sitting idle, to warn those who were unruly. Now the command was no longer just to warn them, but the brethren themselves must withdraw from those who followed this pattern of rebellion. Now think about this powerful teaching. Paul did not want them to keep company with those who simply refused to work. In a day and age where most professing Christians believe that it is the church's responsibility to tickle the ears and fill the saints with self-help steps to happiness, this important teaching of calling our brothers and sisters in Christ, in love, to obedience, was completely abandoned in the church. Head over to Matthew 18. As we head to Matthew 18, let us understand that this is one of a few key passages that would solve a lot of problems in almost every true assembly of believers. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Before we break this passage down, let me just mention that I am well aware that the word used in this passage for church simply meant gathering or assembly. For the disciples, when they first heard this teaching from Christ, it would make sense that in their minds they would have been thinking of the Jewish assembly. But the principles of this text can certainly be applied to the church. Notice with me, in all these passages we are looking at, the motive is always love for one another and restoration within the body of believers. Now listen closely. In order to make sense of this passage, in order to reconcile this text with all the other passages in the New Testament on church discipline, we need to understand that the words of Matthew 18 were specific to a sin between two believers. In other words, this was not the church leadership confronting sin within the church. This was sin between two believers. Notice again the first part of verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you. The teaching is that at all times the matter must be kept to the smallest possible solution. And if a situation can be solved by just going to your brother in Christ, then there's no need to gossip and no need to bring anyone else into it. And if a situation can be solved one-on-one, then there's no need to humiliate anyone, to embarrass anyone. If we are truly seeking what is best for our brothers in Christ, the love we have for them will help us to confront them in a gentle manner, looking for the best time, the best situation, to carefully confront them in a way which leads them to repentance. If the brother in Christ will not listen, then two or three witnesses should be brought in. This was in keeping with what the Old Testament had already taught about this. Listen to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. The purpose for the witnesses is to eliminate hearsay, gossip, half-truths, lies, and false accusations. Under the Mosaic Law, no accusation could be taken seriously unless it was confirmed by the testimony of more than one witness. You know, often in the modern church, we would do well to remember that a witness is not someone who heard the latest gossip about a person. A witness is someone who personally took part in trying to restore the brother in his faith. And only after all these options have been exhausted should the issue come before the church. 
And I would suggest that if you've tried on two different occasions, then that would be a good time to bring in an elder of the church. And should it be necessary, it could be taken before the entire church. But if the person still refuses to turn back from their sin, then the man or woman has demonstrated before all a lack of obedience to Jesus Christ, indicating one of two things. Either they are not truly a believer in Christ, or at the very least, they are living in sin, living out of fellowship with Christ, living like someone without faith in Christ, which means they should have no part in the Lord's Supper or the fellowship of the saints. Head over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you remember from the context of the passage, a very disgusting and immoral act was taking place at the church of Corinth. At the start of the chapter, Paul rebuked the church for failing to remove the man from the local assembly of believers. And Paul had told them in verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Even in such a serious situation, the motivation was love. And the goal was restoration, to cause the person to repent and reconcile to the Lord. Paul made it clear to the church the importance of purity within the body of Christ. And Paul made it clear to the church that he was not talking of trying to judge the lost or force the church's authority on the lost. But rather, Paul was talking within the local assembly of the redeemed in Christ. Pick up the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. That's the key, isn't it? Anyone named a brother, anyone who professes faith in Christ and who does the following. We should not keep company with them. And Paul includes those who are sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or an extortioner. And notice what he says, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. If you follow the flow of thought in the context of this entire passage, Paul is building off of his teaching earlier in this chapter about removing the immoral person out of the assembly of believers. And here we have some more examples of what type of person in the fellowship should be confronted by the local assembly of believers. And Paul lists it out in verse 11. Those who are sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, extortioner. But what I want you to think about is what we do not see in 1 Corinthians 5. There is no reference to the three steps of Matthew 18 that our Lord listed out. And the reason is because Matthew 18 lists out the general steps that you should take whenever another believer sins against you, when there's a personal offense between two believers in Christ. But here in 1 Corinthians 5, this was a church-wide situation. This wasn't just between two believers in Christ. This was open rebellion, open sin within the church that the leadership of the church should have already dealt with. And those situations do not always follow the three steps of Matthew 18. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose someone in a local church got right up after the service, walked over to the offerings that had been taken, put all the money in their pocket, and just started to walk out. And let's say everyone saw them do it. Now, there would be no need to go through all the different steps of Matthew 18. The leadership of the church would be obligated right then and there to confront the person. And if they were unrepentant, if they would not give the money back and were planning on doing it again, there'd be absolutely no need to go through the three or four steps of church discipline. 
The point is, at the church level, every situation is different. Sometimes the person is only warned once. Sometimes it's several times. Here in 1 Corinthians 5, think to yourself, why it is that Paul had said not even to eat with such a person? I think that part of the reason is because Paul understood this type of behavior within the church damages our testimony for Christ. These are some of the most dangerous people to the faith. They lead men and women astray. They deceive people. They welcome sin, and they bring in deception to the local assembly. And whether we understand it or not, when you become a part of a local assembly of believers, you're submitting yourself to the authority of Christ and His Word. You're submitting yourself to the authority of the local church to confront you if you do walk in open disobedience to the Lord. It's tragic. It's tragic today that most churches do not follow the clear teaching of the Word of God when it comes to the responsibility of the church to demonstrate tough love. Head over to Titus 3. Now, as you approach Titus, think of the historical situation. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 teaches us that Paul left Titus in Crete to appoint elders in every city. Now, this is important because Titus was a missionary. Titus was a church planner. And Paul was giving Titus instructions about how to deal with with certain situations, meaning that what we find in Titus 3 is not instruction that is dealing with sin between two believers, but instead it's how Titus at the church level should deal with a divisive man. Titus 3, skip down to verse 10. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Church leadership, the elders of a church, should reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Because after two warnings, it's pretty obvious that such a person is warped and is in sin. And again, in this case, there's no need for the leadership of a church to go through the steps of Matthew 18. Head over to Romans 16. Now, this is another passage that would fall into line with what we just saw in Titus 3. Except the focus here is more on those that promote false doctrine within the church. Listen to the clear teaching of Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Let me read that first part again in case you missed it. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Watch out for those who cause doctrinal divisions within the church of Christ. Paul said, note them. Paul considered it an urgent warning, telling the believers to watch out for those who bring false doctrine into the church. And just on a side note, this does not mean that it is divisive to hold to the teachings of the word of God. Notice Paul said, Note those who bring in doctrine contrary to the doctrine they have learned. And the point of taking all this time here is to recognize that Matthew 18 is sin or personal offense between two believers. And all of these other passages, they illustrate that at the church level, the circumstances of the situation will dictate how the church leadership should respond. Head back now to our text in 2 Thessalonians and think again about Paul's statement withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Ask yourself, which category does this fall under? Well, this is at the church level, isn't it? Paul was telling them not to fellowship with anyone who would not follow the apostolic instruction. 
but think of this teaching, withdraw from them. This is something every single person in the assembly was to do. They were to deliberately withdraw fellowship from the disobedient. This is tough love. This is biblical love, love that wants obedience to Christ more than temporary fellowship. This is not love that is based on feelings or emotions. This is love that is grounded in the Word of God, that understands what is best for the person over the long term. Paul was instructing the church to continue to withhold fellowship from those who refuse to work because it let them know that their sin, their disobedience to Christ, was causing a problem. It was causing a break in fellowship amongst the redeemed in Christ. And I think the implication of withdrawing fellowship from these people meant that those who continue to reject the teaching of the Lord about this would be denied not only those congregational feasts that they had, the congregational meals, but the Lord's Supper as well. Paul said this was to be done to every brother. They couldn't play favorites. The standard was to be the same, no matter who it was that was guilty. The church had already been well instructed by Paul and his group how they should live, leaving every one of them without excuse. Now take a look, starting with verse 7, at how Paul reminds them of the example and the teaching they had left with them. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Paul begins this section of teaching by telling the brethren, for you yourselves know the example in the teaching that Paul and Silas left them, it could not be denied. No one could claim ignorance of what was expected of each of them because the truth on this subject had already been taught to them, and they didn't really need to be told again. The failure for some of them to live how they should was not so much ignorance as it was simple unwillingness to obey. They knew from looking at the example that Paul and Silas had left for them how they should live. Paul and Silas were not disorderly, meaning that Paul and Silas did not eat anyone's bread free of charge. And the idea, of course, here of eating someone's bread is not referring to just having one meal with someone, but it carries the idea of living off of someone else. Paul was not saying that no one ever had them over for a meal from time to time. Paul was testifying, we did not depend on others for our daily bread. Because instead, Paul could testify, they worked with labor and toil night and day in order that they would not be a burden to them. There was a sharp contrast between how some of them were living in the church with how Paul and Silas lived among them. For Paul and Silas, it was extremely important that they were not a burden to anyone in the church, not because they did not have the authority, Paul tells them in verse 9, not because Paul and Silas didn't have the right to be supported by the church. Try to keep in mind that Paul had made it absolutely clear in 1 Timothy 5 and 1 Corinthians 9 that because of his labor in the Word of God, he had the right to be supported by the church. In fact, oftentimes in Scripture, we see that Paul was supported by the churches, but he didn't take their support at Thessalonica because they wanted to set the example for these new converts. Paul and Silas took the high road. They did what was best for their brothers and sisters in the faith. The easiest path was to let the church support them, but the best path, the path that would be most advantageous to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would be to labor day and night and support themselves because it would teach these new converts at Thessalonica the importance of sacrificing for others. 
This example that Paul and Silas left them should have brought about immediate shame to those who refused to work. Now take a look at our next two verses, starting in verse 10, we read, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now we start to get to the heart of the problem at Thessalonica. Paul reminds them that when they were with them at Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had taught them, if you don't work, you don't eat. The fact that Paul had taught this when he was with them leads me to wonder if Paul thought this might be a problem at Thessalonica. This might be a part of the reason that while he was at Thessalonica, he worked hard so that he did not receive support from the church. I think it's more than possible that he saw this problem coming. The teaching isn't complicated. It isn't hard to understand. If a man does not work, he does not eat. Don't enable him by offering him food and handouts. Practice tough love. Let his hunger hit him, and he'll find all the motivation he needs to get a job. It's not love to enable people to continue down a path of disobedience. It's not love to encourage people to sit around and not work. If they refuse to work, let them go hungry. That should take care of the problem once and for all. Now, verse 11 brings us to the problem that raised this entire discussion. Word had gotten back to Paul and Silas that some of them, some of them were not working at all. Remember, both Thessalonica and Corinth, where Paul was writing this from, these were both port towns, and it was common for people to travel back and forth, and it would have been easy for word to make its way back to Paul. And the wording used by Paul indicates that they had heard more than one report from the church about this. This type of report kept coming to Paul. Instead of working, some of the people among the brethren were busybodies. They were minding everyone else's business but their own. Paul doesn't go into all the gory details here, but the clear understanding given is that they were interfering in the lives of others, of others within the church. Remember, the Greek people did not think too highly of physical labor. With the understanding of the imminent return of Christ, it fed into their tendency to avoid physical work. They felt that if Christ is going to return soon, there was no point in working. Paul then teaches them in verse 12, Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now Paul had already told the church in chapter 4 of his first letter to work with their own hands, to live a quiet life, and to mind their own business. This new command from Paul was for those who continued to be disobedient. The command was simple and it was blunt. Quit talking and start working. Quit eating the food of others. Work for your own food. Now, Paul wraps up this letter to the church with two more sections of text, the first of which begins with verse 13, where we read, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. With verse 13, Paul switches back and is now addressing the entire body of believers, not just those who are not working. And he tells the church, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, if you're in the ministry for very long, you're going to get burned. And Christians get burned in the church. People use you to get them out of a jam in life, and then you never hear from them again. It gets old. You feel used. And if you're not careful, you can give in to the temptation of just saying, what is the point? Paul reminds the church, don't do it. Don't give in. Don't grow weary of doing the right thing. It does get discouraging when those who are disobedient to the word of God seem to prosper. But Paul reminded them to continue on with honoring Christ at all times. 
no matter how discouraging it may get. In verses 14 and 15, Paul told the church how they should deal with those who continue to be disobedient by not working. And we understand that the church was to read this letter to the entire assembly at the next Lord's Day. And if some still refused to obey, first they were to note that person. Understand that these people had brought themselves under the attention of the church by their refusal to obey the instructions of Paul. This was something that they brought on themselves. This is true of any person who endures the discipline of the church of Jesus Christ. And after they took note of that person, they were told not to keep company with them so that he may be ashamed. The church is to avoid the social contacts with those who are under this type of discipline. Remember, this was being done in a city where many people were hostile to the gospel and the believers who lived there, meaning this would have been a huge deal. If the entire church of Christ would carry out this type of discipline, the guilty parties would feel the pressure and disapproval of the church, which would hopefully, hopefully lead them to repentance. Paul wanted to make sure that they were always acting out of love, not out of hatred, which is why Paul told them, Do not count them as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The proper response was to withhold fellowship, but let it be done patiently, in love with the goal for doing so always being in order to restore those who had gone astray. We don't hate those going through discipline. We're to love them, pray for them, and hope, and hope that they're going to repent and be able to restore fellowship within the brethren. Now Paul closes the letter to the church by writing, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As I look at the closing words of Paul, I'm reminded of how much the Apostle Paul did not want the church to depend on him. He wanted them to depend on Jesus Christ. He wanted them to have the peace of Christ, confident of the love of the Savior for them. He wanted them to lean on the peace of Christ always in every way, no matter what it was they were facing. They could count on, they could lean on the peace that comes from Christ. Now, verse 17 lets us know that Paul had been dictating this letter. Paul signed it and reminded them that his signature was evidence that this letter was authentic and that it came from the Apostle Paul and not the hands of men who sought to lead the church astray, pretending to be Paul. Paul concluded the letter by writing, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In many ways, Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica reminds me of the story of the man who just moved to Alaska. He'd heard all those terrible stories about people who over the years had fallen through the ice and drowned. Well, he developed a deep fear of meeting his end the same way. So sure enough, one day he thought his deepest fear might come true when he found himself crossing a frozen river. As he started to cross the frozen river, he heard a cracking sound come from the ice and he became scared that the ice might break underneath him. So very slowly, very carefully, he lowered himself down to the ice to distribute his weight, to spread his weight out over the ice with the hope that it would not give way. Well, after about 20 minutes of carefully crawling across this ice, the man heard something. He heard the sound of a jeep starting up on the other side of the frozen river. And then sure enough, the jeep just drove right on past him to the other side. With a new sense of confidence, the man got up, and then he walked the rest of the way across the river with great relief. 
When Paul first wrote to the church of Thessalonica, there was fear because they had been suffering persecution which they had thought was the day of the Lord. There was confusion in the church because false teachers had crept in. Others were busybodies refusing to work. The church was unsettled. The church had lost some of their confidence. And the apostle Paul let the church know that what was taking place, it was nothing new. Paul himself had crossed this river many times before. And the solution was not for the church to fear what was before them. The solution for the church was to remain steadfast in the word of God, to draw their strength from Christ, to walk with renewed confidence and the peace of Jesus Christ in their lives. Jesus told the disciples in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What a great truth it is that by knowing the peace of Christ, we have nothing, we have nothing to fear in this world. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, telling them in the fourth chapter of his letter, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Take confidence in the peace of Christ as we each continue to cross the river of life, knowing that through Christ and in Christ, our future is eternally secure. I hope our study of First and Second Thessalonians has been a blessing to you. Drop us a note. Let us know that you've been listening. And make plans to join us in our next study as we begin another book in the precious Word of God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 